This is a scam. And the people are wise to it. And that's why my polls went up. I think they said 17 points in the last two or three days. I've never had that one. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But today you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com. And working overtime to try to stay on top of all the news that's happening. Uh, What a time for Brad and Desi to be gone, huh? Uh, But they are coming back, just so you know. They've actually made their way back home where they were dealing with a number of emergencies that popped up while they were gone. Uh, But yeah, shouldn't be too much longer. Thank you for bearing with me. We have a busy show for you today. I hope you got to hear the interview yesterday that I played with uh, Bayan Sami Abdul-Rahman. She's the Kurdistan regional representative to the United States, and she gave us a lot of deep background on Kurdistan. Um, Again, I recorded that interview about four years ago, but it's one of those that stuck with me because I learned so much from her, and I was frankly almost embarrassed by how little I knew about Kurdistan. And when I spoke to other people this weekend after the news broke— uh, of Donald Trump's actions, um, that w- I got the same reaction. People weren't as informed about Kurdistan as, as we should be. So uh, I hope you got as much out of that as I did. Today, we're going to speak with an academic and an author. David L. Phillips is the director of the Program on Peacebuilding and Human Rights at Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights. And he's also written a couple of books dealing with Kurdistan and Syria in that part of the world. So that's coming up. Also, the Supreme Court is back in session. And on Tuesday, they heard what will likely be one of the big cases of the season. And that has to do with the employment rights of LGBTQ people and whether or not they're covered under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. We'll get to all that, but we'll begin with a look at the latest news. And we'll begin with Tuesday morning and the impeachment inquiry. Tuesday was the day that the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sundland, a man who has no experience and only got his position because he donated a million dollars to Trump's inaugural committee— uh, he was scheduled to testify behind closed doors. The House, of Rep- uh, bef- the House of Representatives Foreign Affairs, Intelligence, and Oversight Committee staff were expected to ask Sunland to explain why he became involved in dealings with Ukraine, which is not a member of the European Union. However, shortly after 8 a.m. Tuesday morning, the news broke that the Trump administration blocked Sunland from appearing. His attorney, Robert Luskin, said, quote, He's a sitting ambassador and employee of state and is required to follow their direction. My thought is, if Trump is so innocent and transparent with nothing to hide, why does he keep blocking witnesses from cooperating? In fact, Tuesday afternoon, it got even more real as the White House sent a letter to Nancy Pelosi and the three committee chairs leading the impeachment probe. 
basically signaling that they will block any cooperation with the impeachment inquiry, calling Democrats' efforts illegitimate and dangerous, setting up a constitutional clash with Congress. The letter is from White House counsel Pat Cipollone, who all but declared that the Trump administration will refuse to engage with a process it considers to be constitutionally invalid. Quote, Given that your inquiry lacks any legitimate constitutional foundation, any pretense of fairness or even the most elementary due process protections, the executive branch cannot be expected to participate in it, he wrote. We'll see about that. Reaction on Twitter is, as you would guess, (laughs) voluminous. Somebody named Bradley P. Moss, who is identified as a national security lawyer, lawful transparency, and whistleblower advocate, tweeted, I am not impressed by the White House's letter. It's a political bluff. Call the bluff. Call a formal vote to launch an impeachment inquiry. Get it over with already. I guess the ball's now in Nancy Pelosi's court. Stay tuned. Now, investigators are also scheduled to talk with Marie Yovanovitch. She's the former ambassador to Ukraine who Trump fired as she was, I guess, not willing to play ball with them. She's supposed to testify on Friday. And again, while she's no longer an ambassador to Ukraine, she's still a State Department employee. George Kent, a deputy assistant secretary of state, didn't appear before the investigating committees on Monday for his scheduled deposition. I guess it all makes sense now. Well, not really. Makes sense in their world. Meanwhile, Donald Trump seems to be on a roll trying to unmask the identity of the whistleblower. His smearing is so incendiary and the threats so real that House Democrats are discussing a location away from the Capitol, as well as a staff-only session that would prevent lawmakers from attending and asking questions. Aides have considered having the whistleblower testify from a separate location via a video hookup in which the camera would obscure his or her image and alter his or her voice, possibly with modification technology. They're also talking about having the whistleblower sit behind a screen or a partition. A third option being floated includes audio-only testimony. Now on to Kurdistan and Syria and the madman in the Oval Office. Really, just when you think the news can't get any more explosive or any weirder, Trump opens his mouth again. This time it was during a phone call with Turkish President Erdogan, ostensibly to smooth over the fact that there was no one-on-one meeting between the two leaders at the United Nations General Assembly last week. So during this call, Trump reportedly agreed to move U.S. troops out of northeastern Syria to clear the way for a Turkish military operation in the area. Trump tweeted, of course, as part of a long tantrum, The Kurds fought with us, but were paid massive amounts of money and equipment to do so. They have been fighting Turkey for decades. I held off this fight for almost three years. But it's time for us to get out of these ridiculous endless wars, many of them tribal, and bring our soldiers home. Let me just break in here for a second and say, yes, we need to get out of these endless wars, without a doubt. Just we need to do it in a logical, coordinated way working with our allies, working with the Department of Defense, working with your advisors, with the people who know how to do this stuff. Donald Trump, you are a disaster, a walking disaster who has no clue how to do any of this. And if you don't believe me, stick around for the interview coming up next. Don't take my word for it. Anyway, back to Trump, who continued his Twitter tantrum, writing, we will fight where it is to our benefit and only fight to win. All capitalized. That's why, you know, I was kind of yelling. Turkey, Europe, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Russia, and the Kurds will now have to figure the situation out and what they want to do with the captured ISIS fighters in their, quote, neighborhood. Shortly thereafter, the White House put out an official statement. (laughs) Then came the about face. Even Trump got into the act by claiming he didn't mean what you heard him say. And if you thought the last tweet I read was off kilter, this one deserves an award. Quote, As I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, he really said that. I, I, I know it. Sounds like I made it up, but he really said, in my great and unmatched wisdom, 
considered to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. With the E and economy capitalized, really, and then in parentheses, I've done before. I don't even know what that is supposed to mean. It sounds like he's trying to be the new Austin Powers or something. Dr. Evil and a million dollars. I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. So anyway, the rest of the day was filled with reaction, almost unanimously critical of Trump's apparently unilateral decision, catching even the Pentagon off guard. Susan Rice, who was Barack Obama's national security advisor, happened to be booked as a guest on Stephen Colbert's show Monday night. You're a perfect person to have on right now. Uh, Obama's national security advisor for four years. Our, our present uh, president has just announced the withdrawal of U.S. troops uh, from Syria, allowing Turkey to come in and really have their way with the Kurds, who they label a ter- terrorist organization. Um, What does this mean to stability in that region? Stephen, I woke up this morning to hear that news, and as I do, it seems like six days a week, I just put my head in my hands. This is bad crazy. It's just... For those of us who may not have followed the role of the Kurds in helping us fight against ISIS, why Why, is it? Let me explain it. Why is it? Because these are the people who, for the last four years, have been fighting on our behalf with our equipment to defeat ISIS. And they have done it with enormous efficacy, and they've sacrificed immensely. And we basically just said to them, see ya. And let the Turks, who are like the hungry wolf trying to kill the lamb, go for it. And it's just appalling because... You know, we promised them our partnership. And we promised them that if they worked with us to defeat our common enemy, but particularly, you know, our, the United States and the Western enemy, Mm -hmm. then we would stand with them. And Trump woke up on the wrong side of the bed, it appears, and decided, never mind. Which is why, finally, the the Republicans in Congress have gotten a pulse today. She was talking about running for Congress. That would be a good thing. Brett McGurk, who served under Presidents Bush and under Obama as the special presidential envoy for the U.S. campaign against ISIS. (laughs) So he's credible here. He was on Maddow Monday night and gave us some good background information. It's a dangerous situation, but I hope Americans are, are in their thoughts We have Americans on the ground in Syria. I spent a lot of time in Syria in this war against ISIS. Um, I I used to go in there every couple months. And uh, we have people on the ground tonight who are there under President Trump's orders, and they really have no idea what they're supposed to do. And that that is just unacceptable if you're the commander-in-chief. This is the most solemn obligation for a president. And uh, what he did last night just threw this entire a policy process into disarray and left our people out there uh, totally exposed. James Laporta at Newsweek today has a scary story in which he uses a National Security Council source uh, who tells him that on that phone call, the person heard the phone call, the president just got rolled, that Erdogan just basically manipulated him into making this rash decision. Is there something about the president and one-on-one conversations with foreign leaders like Erdogan or others that he's particularly susceptible to? The president, like, it's a lot of bluster. And then when when the plans and policies meet friction in the real world, which any policy does, um, he tends to just totally back down. Hmm. So we've seen this on Iran in which he's he's implementing a maximalist policy on Iran in which we're trying to just strangle their economy. And Iran is going to react. And then the onus is on President Trump. How are you going to react? Um, when it comes to Turkey, uh, two calls in a row, the president just completely uh, backed down. I've been on a lot of foreign leader calls with, with multiple presidents, and these calls are usually, um, I was in the Bush administration in particular, I was in the Oval Office with President Bush, a number of calls uh, with Erdogan and others. Uh, they're very well prepared. Uh, Mr. President, here's what you're likely to hear. Uh, here's how we think you should answer that. If he says this, take it back, say that we'll consult and advise. For a president to make a major decision, which involves matters of war and peace, immediately after a foreign leader call, I think is almost historically unprecedented, because there's no consultation with the national security team. 
with military commanders to think through the costs and consequences of different courses of action. So uh, it's very odd. You've seen the administration, as you reported, Rachel, uh, trying to walk back the decision today. And we might get into a place again, which I think is the worst place to be, in which the president is making very clear to the world that he wants out of Syria, uh, but the national security team is trying to find a way to stay in Syria, and you just buy enough time until you have another crisis with Trump. Even Lindsey Graham and Moscow Mitch offered stern criticism, a new development. But the bottom line is that Donald Trump destroys the United States standing in the world a bit more with each hour that passes with him still in office. All right, I think it's time to hear from our guest. Up next, David L. Phillips, director of the Program on Peacebuilding and Human Rights at Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights, and an author of a couple of books dealing with Kurdistan and Syria and that whole region. David L. Phillips joins me next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Just a quick thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only thing that keeps us on those public airwaves. We don't rely on uh, corporate support or political support. We rely on you and your support is needed now more than ever at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Welcome back to the broadcast. Once again, you got me, Nicole Sandler, filling in for Brad and Desi, who are on their way back. I promise you that it's coming soon. Obviously, all eyes are focused on the Kurds, wondering what the United States is going to do following Donald Trump's unilateral move over the weekend to pull whatever troops we have remaining in northeastern Syria out, giving Turkey free reign to run roughshod over the Kurds. I hope you got to hear the interview we aired yesterday with Bayan Rahman, the Kurdistan regional government representative to the United States. Now, again, that interview was recorded a few years ago, but she's still in that position. And we weren't so much talking about news events that happened uh, around the time of the interview, but getting more of a historical take on who the Kurds are, what Kurdistan is, because it's unrivaled in the world. I mean, it's the only, I guess, sort of nation state that doesn't really have a state. So uh, if you didn't hear it yesterday, I invite you to go to bradblog.com and listen to the October 7th program, because I promise you'll like it. But to continue on the story, I'm sort of not obsessed with Kurdistan, but I'm concerned about all those people there who have had our backs for years. And thanks to Donald Trump, we are screwing them over. So I called on somebody who knows a lot about Kurdistan today. On the line with us now is David L. Phillips. He's director of the Program on Peacebuilding and Human Rights at Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights. In addition, David served as a senior advisor to the U.S. State Department during uh, the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations. He's got a book out called The Great Betrayal, How America Abandoned the Kurds and Lost the Middle East, and one on the way titled Frontline Syria, A Political and Military History of the Civil War. So, David, you are well-versed on what's happening in that part of the world that um, we're all focused on right now. Uh, so thank you for joining us today. Um, I I did an interview a, a few years back with a woman named uh, Bayan Rahman. Uh, she's the, the Kurdistan regional representative to the United States. And, and I enjoyed speaking with her because um, I, I'll speak for myself only. I knew so little about Kurdistan and the Kurdish people, and they happen to be one of our best allies in that part of the world, right? Is there anything you can tell us about the Kurds that you think most, most people listening probably don't know? So there are probably 40 million Kurds hmm. who live in four different countries, mm -hmm. Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and Iran. 
Kurds are the largest stateless people in the world. After the end of the First World War, uh, there was no effective Kurdish representation in Versailles at the Paris Peace Conference. Mm. The Western powers didn't quite know what to do with the Kurds, so they promised Kurds an opportunity for self-determination and a referendum within a year. Uh, that promise was overtaken by events when Mustafa Kemal Ataturk launched uh, his war of liberation, and Kurds ended up uh, betrayed and abused by Western powers. And for the next century, they lived in the Middle East, stricken of their rights and with little support from the West. That changed recently. Uh, the Kurds in Iraq provided a lot of assistance to U.S. efforts uh, to overthrow Saddam and move Iraq towards a democratic government. In Syria, more recently, uh, the U.S. needed boots on the ground in order to confront and defeat ISIS. They found the Syrian Kurds were capable and motivated. So starting with the battle for Kobani in the fall of 2014, the U.S. was supplying weapons and air power to the Kurds. Without them, the U.S. would not have been able to vanquish ISIS from its caliphate in Syria. Mm -hmm. That's why the announcement by President Trump over the weekend that the U.S. was withdrawing and would leave the Kurds to fend for themselves took everybody by surprise right. and was such a shock to the Kurds. More than 11,000 Syrian Kurds have died mm. at America's behest fighting ISIS. Wow. And in terms of, uh, just to put it in perspective, Americans who've been killed in Syria fighting alongside of the Kurds, it's been, it's like a dozen or something? It's a ridiculously right. Kurds, low number. The, the Kurds were the boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. They were the point of the spear. Uh, without U.S. air power and U.S. weapons, Syrian Kurds wouldn't have been effective, but they essentially did the dirty work for us. Right. They, uh, they went into Raqqa, which is the capital of the caliphate, and fought street to street. And then the final ISIS uh, town called Baguz, near Derazur, on the border with Iraq, was also vanquished by Kurdish fighters. So we owe the Kurds a great debt of gratitude for their sacrifice and their achievements. Right. So so you wake up uh, whenever, Monday morning or over the weekend, and you hear, you see Trump's tweet, uh, and you hear that he had a phone call with Turkish President Erdogan, after which he made this unilateral pronouncement that he's going to pull U.S. troops back from uh, out of northeastern Syria and let Turkey come in and have their way. Um the Turkish people and the Kurds, according to Trump, are natural enemies. I thought you'd enjoy knowing that. Um, so I guess he, he, his attitude is let them have at it. D do you know where this is coming from? Or I mean, it's astounding, isn't it? It's shocking and rather disgusting that yeah. we would betray an ally and throw them under the bus. Uh, it's important to understand that from Erdogan's perspective, the Syrian Kurdish militias constituting the Syrian Democratic Forces, are a branch of the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which he believes is a terrorist organization and which the U.S. lists as an FTO. To Erdogan, fighting terrorism means killing Kurds, mm -hmm. and he's ready to come across the border and commit a slaughter. Without the U.S. Special Forces in Syria serving as a tripwire, uh, Erdogan would have come in sooner. He's been threatening to launch cross-border operations. And his goal is to create a buffer zone that's 20 miles deep in Syria, allow refugees to return to that, uh, to that safe zone, and drive the Kurds away from Turkey's border. Uh, what escapes his memory and Trump's memory as well is the role that the Kurds have played alongside the U.S. fighting ISIS. Mm -hmm. So there's a broader question here about how the U.S. should treat the Kurds. Abandoning them is strategically flawed, tactically incoherent, and uh, morally corrupt. 
So we really need to take a, a, a deep breath, think about who are our friends and allies, and recognize the importance of sticking with them. Right. Now, now there's a lot of backtracking going on. Originally, the White House put out a statement seeming to back up Trump's assertion. Uh, but then within hours, uh, the, the Department of Defense sort of disowned it. And people, uh, he, he was getting incoming attacks from not only Democrats, but some Republicans, too. Obviously, he realized he screwed something up. Do you believe Donald Trump has any clue what kind of a hornet's nest he opened? What has any idea of what kind of damage Turkish troops would inflict on the Kurds? Or does he know and not care because he's too busy sucking up to Erdogan? So Donald Trump is clueless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he can't distinguish the Kurds from any other group in the uh-huh. Middle East. Yep. He recognizes that they're capable fighters. But I think there's a broader question here. After a year of negotiating with Turkey, a security cooperation agreement. Why suddenly, during the conversation with Erdogan, did Trump reverse course and then announce that the U.S. was pulling out? What did Erdogan promise him? What deal was made in order for the U.S. to abandon the Kurds and against the advice of Pentagon and State Department officials to try to disown our loyalties to the Kurds? I don't think that this happened in a vacuum. I suspect that Erdogan made some pledges to Trump, who owns properties and manufacturing facilities in Turkey. Uh, someday we'll get to the bottom of the story and understand better why Trump completely shifted course and decided to side with Erdogan over our proven battlefield allies, the Kurds. Right. Now, I don't know if you saw this or not, but um, uh, Newsweek, James Laporta and Newsweek had a story yesterday. Um, The headline reads, official who heard call says Trump got rolled by Turkey and, quote, has no spine. Um, I don't know. Did you see this report? Yeah, I did see the report. And and is anybody surprised by that? No, of not at Erdogan all. Of course Erdogan rolled him. Yep. Of course Trump has no spine. He's completely clueless. He's got no strategic depth. So we shouldn't be surprised that he sold out our friend right. in trying to placate an adversary. But it, this is who he likes. I mean, for some reason, Donald Trump, as president, sidles up to these despotic authoritarian leaders that that he aspires to be like from Erdogan to uh, Duterte to Putin to uh, I I mean you name it 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 seems like he goes out of his way to um, poke our our allies to uh, uh, to to annoy them to you know (laughs) to to go against their best interests in favor of these uh, bad actors on the world stage does that make any sense to you? It makes no sense. Uh, allies are battle-tested, mm-hmm. and those alliances need to be preserved. Um, getting friendly with authoritarians and dictators is antithetical to American values and strategic interests. Why does Trump do this? Because he is like these authoritarian dictators, wants to be like them, wants to be admired by them. And as we've seen in Ukraine, he's making dirty deals with other heads of government. More will surface about this. Uh, good. Uh, the sooner the better. So uh, I want to ask you, again, we're speaking with David Phillips. He's the director of the Program on Peacebuilding and Human Rights at Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights. Um, Donald Trump doesn't seem to care about human rights at all, from China to on down. Uh, I mean, even we heard reports that in his recent conversation with Chairman Xi, um, he told him that he, he, he won't say anything about Hong Kong. He's fine as long as trade talks progress. This is not the American way of doing things, is it? So uh, values are an important part of American foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Our allies and friends are people and countries with whom we share values. Trump has chosen fealty to countries with whom he personally shares values, and those are anti-democratic and antithetical to human rights. Yeah. 
as somebody who does this, who teaches about human rights, um, this has to be, I mean, it's horribly disturbing to me as just a, a citizen. To you, as someone who's worked in this, in government and now in academia, teaching what, you know, the principles that were the country's based on, what does this do to you? I, I know, I, and I, maybe I'm getting too personal here, I know for the first at least year of Trump's administration, I was in a deep depression. I couldn't, I couldn't resolve the fact that this country somehow put this man into the, the Oval Office. How do you deal with this? So it makes me fighting mad uh-huh. that... Um, decades of work that I've put into building partnerships with people in countries around the world are undermined by a single tweet or a silly, stupid statement coming from the president. But that doesn't mean that we wave a white flag and surrender. It means that we deeply resolve to uphold our interests and values, and we work with countries that are similarly aligned. The U.S. has been involved in regime change around the world. Mm-hmm. We have a system for regime change here in the United States, which is called elections. Yep. We'll have an opportunity soon uh, to rid the White House of this poison that's infected our government. I want to ask you about Turkey, because Turkey used to be an ally of the United States, and I, I think technically they probably still are. Did Erdogan change, or is he a recent leader put into place? What happened with Turkey? So in 2002, when Erdogan's Justice and Development Party was running for election, Erdogan made a uh, revealing statement. He said, democracy is like a streetcar. You get off when you reach your destination. He's always been an Islamist who's anti-democratic and Mm anti-Western. He's just shown his true colors more fully as of late. And showing his true colors means trying to undermine U.S. interests in Syria by working with Iran and Russia through the so-called Astana process, violating the core principle of interoperability of NATO systems by buying S-400 surface-to-air missiles from Russia, Mm -hmm. cracking down on his own civil society. Turkey has more journalists in jail today than any other country. So right now in Turkey... Erdogan has gone rogue. More than 50,000 people have been arrested in response to the so-called coup of a few years ago. Mm -hmm. More than 100,000 civil servants have been removed. So Turkey has become a giant gulag. Instead of reminiscing about the way Turkey was or being unrealistic about about what Turkey has become, we should be steely-eyed in seeing Turkey for what it is, hostile to U.S. interests, hostile to democracy and human rights, deeply Islamist and a supporter of jihadists mm. and the original sponsor of ISIS. Wow. So they're, they're, they're no friend to us, at least under this regime there. Do you think Donald Trump is just doing this because of his pocketbook? I mean, he's got his Trump towers in, um, in Turkey somewhere. So it, it's unfathomable that he would trade U.S. interests for a small profit. Yeah. So I don't think it's about the money. I just think he's clueless. Wow. He has no understanding of um, what kind of government exists in Turkey and what it's doing to undermine our interests. Now, he's comfortable making deals with dictators rather than supporting our friends. Mm-hmm. And the Kurds in Syria are paying a very big price. Oh, I, I feel so terrible for those people who have a... A hard lot in life as it is. You mentioned they live in four countries, but they are they are a stateless people. They've been fighting on our behalf for so long, and then for Donald Trump to, I guess, unilaterally decide that he's going <laughs> to make them fodder for the Turkish troops who who he gave free reign to invade um, is just mind boggling. Now, thankfully, more steady minds have spoken up and and finally some republicans have said this is nuts this is insane and it looks like they're gonna uh stop him um but has the damage already been done i mean does, how much damage does this man do every day so we've already withdrawn u.s special forces from two observation posts on the turkey syrian border uh there's been an uproar of protests to his announcement 
mm-hmm. coming from bipartisan senators and House members, from the foreign policy establishment, from the Pentagon, and senior military officials themselves. Uh, we don't know what the future of U.S. involvement in Syria is going to be, but the Kurds have learned a very hard lesson. There's, a, there's an adage uh, among the Kurds which goes, Kurds have no friend but the mountains. Hmm. Because we've betrayed the Kurds again, we've reminded them of their tragic history, and we've forgotten an important lesson for ourselves. The U.S. has no friend in Syria but the Kurds. Wow. And until we recognize that and uphold our friendships, our interests will be ill-served. Our standing on the world community used to be that the president of the United States was referred to often by American press as the leader of the free world. Although when I've used that term, I've gotten pushback from listeners in other countries saying that's not true. It's especially not true today. And I I sort of flinch a little bit when I hear a commentator on TV or radio refer to, you know, the 2020 race as the the election of the new leader of the free world. We've relegated that position, haven't we? So we're not the leader of the free world. There was a unipolar moment after the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. We didn't really capitalize on that by spreading democracy and no. human rights and mm-hmm. free markets. Uh, so Part of that responsibility rests with U.S. leaders at the time and today, but it's not too late to restore America's image. We can survive four years of Donald Trump and the White House. The U.S. around the world cannot survive a second term of Donald Trump as president. Mm-hmm. So we really, it's, it's time for a gut check and a recognition that now we have to work hard to restore America's interests. That starts by working at home to bring democracy back to the country. Yes. Um, one last question I'll, I'll, along the line of your uh, involvement in, in human rights. Um, what we are doing at the southern border under the auspices of Donald Trump is, um, is, is horrific. Separating families, caging children and babies, caging p- human beings. Um, we, we are violating the human rights of of all these people. Um, We have no moral authority any longer, do we, with with Donald Trump as our president? So we've lost our moral authority. We've lost our way. Um, I think a vast majority of Americans recognize that, but uh, we don't really have a plan for countering uh, the, the lies and lack of leadership coming from the White House. Right. So we need to think carefully about a strategy for restoring America's role in the world. My family came here at the turn of the century as refugees. Their shtetl was burned in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. They built a business. It's a typical American success story. We need to get back to that. This is a country of immigrants. It's a country which is made rich through diversity. Instead of looking down at people who aspire to a better life or greater freedoms, we should welcome them. And when we get back to that, our own greatness will be restored. From your mouth to people going to the voting booth on November 3rd and doing the right thing. Um, It's so important that we elect uh, somebody other than Donald Trump. On that front, and obviously um, no comment is a good answer, do you have, are are there any of the candidates on the the Democratic side that you are comfortable with when it comes to foreign policy? So the, the Democratic candidate who's most experienced in foreign policy is Joe Biden. Yeah. But frankly, any of the Democratic candidates would be better than what we have in the White House today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got you on that. David L. Phillips, again, the book that's already available. When did this come out? The Great Betrayal, How America Abandoned the Kurds and Lost the Middle East, because it sounds like it could have come out today. Uh, it came out about six months ago. Oh, okay. And, and the new one you have coming up, Frontline Syria, A Political and Military History of the Civil War. Uh, when is that coming out? Probably in about seven or eight months. And okay. I'm sad to say that both books tell a tragic story about how the world struggles when the U.S. abrogates its leadership. So an important takeaway is that we have an important role to play. The world looks to us for moral and principled leadership, pragmatic guidance. As soon as we're able to fulfill our own aspirations 
and meet the needs of our friends and allies around the world, the more peaceful and prosperous the world will be. All right. I hope people listen to your words because they're very important. David L. Phillips, thank you so much for joining us and shining a little light on uh, giving us information that, you know, a lot of us are, are grasping at straws trying to find. So I, I really appreciate your time and information today. Thank you, Nicole. It was nice to speak with you. I guess Trump wanted to change the subject. I guess it worked. All right. But there's other stuff going on. The Supreme Court is back in session. They reconvened on Monday, first Monday in October, and on Tuesday, they heard what will probably be one of the biggest cases this term. It deals with employment rights of LGBTQ people. More specifically, are they protected under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964? They certainly should be. We'll dip into that subject next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host on today's edition of The Bradcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. We're back on the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show. And we're not the only ones back. The Supreme Court is back in session this week. They always start their term the first Monday in October. And one of the first cases they took up is going to be one of the biggies this year. It's a question dealing with the rights of LGBTQ people, more specifically, their workplace rights. The question, do they have protections under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination based on sex? They should, right? So that was the question. Three cases joined together at the court. To learn more about it, we'll talk with Reverend Jasmine Beach Ferrara. She's the executive director of the Campaign for Southern Equality. Before we get into the reason for our conversation today, can you explain a little bit about the Campaign for Southern Equality? Absolutely, and thanks for having me on. The Campaign for Southern Equality is based in Asheville, North Carolina, and we work across the entire South to promote full LGBTQ equality, both under the law, but also in how we live our daily lives. We were launched in 2011 and are very honored to get to work in the policy arena, on litigation, uh, provide direct services, and do grassroots organizing. Now, there's a reverend in front of your name. Are, Are you a member of the clergy? I am. I'm an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Gotcha. Okay, well, today, the reason the reason I'm calling you today is because, uh, well, the Supreme Court kicked off its term yesterday, first Monday in October, and today they're going to hear oral arguments in actually three cases combined into one kind of big umbrella about LGBTQ rights. And, and the central question here is if people should be protected from employment discrimination— under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination based on sex. And it's astounding. I mean, I live in Florida, so I'm also in the South. But down here, you, you can be fired simply because you're gay, and it happens all the time. Uh, there's, I, I'm constantly seeing things in the newspaper where a couple gets married, one of the couple goes back to work after the honeymoon, puts a picture of them together, he and his spouse perhaps, on his desk, and is subsequently fired. This is legal, not only here, but in many states in the country? That's right. And so many people are just as surprised as you are to to learn that. Uh, There are 20 states in the country that provide state-level protections against employment discrimination for LGBTQ folks. That means there's 30 states that are uncovered, and that includes the entire South. So you can still be fired for being LGBTQ in any southern state and in 30 states across the country. 
Uh, and when you really break this down, as you were doing in the in the kind of anecdote you related, it just uh, shocks the conscience. You know, what this is about is someone being fired from a job they're perfectly capable of fulfilling simply because of either who they are or who they love. What we know from years of polling is that a significant majority of Americans, close to 70%, support pro- uh, protections for, for LGBTQ folks in the area of employment. Um, and despite that, however, we haven't seen the movement we need to either in state legislatures or at the federal level from Congress. Uh, so today's arguments before the Supreme Court are momentously significant. We're all following very closely along. This ruling will uh, be significant for people across the entire country. And it has the opportunity to help our nation move closer to the promise of full equality under the law for everyone and to really mark a significant step forward in the decades-long fight for full equality for LGBTQ people. It's about time. Now, I I mentioned there are three cases um, coming together. Can can you give us a little thumbnail on each of the three? Because they they address different aspects or or different, I don't know, subsections of the LGBTQ community? Yeah, that's right. There's there's three cases that have now been uh, joined uh, for today's arguments. And they're cases on behalf of very brave plaintiffs Mm -hmm. who experience uh, or on behalf of someone who experienced employment discrimination, either because of their sexual orientation, meaning they were gay or lesbian, or because of their gender identity. Uh, one of the most high-profile cases is a woman who uh, transitioned and was fired from her job uh, at a funeral home wow. as a result of that. Another is a case coming from Georgia, so our neighbors here in the South, of a man who was publicly employed by a county, had a successful career, and shortly after starting to come out more in his public life, uh, lost his job as a result of that. Unbelievable. These are very brave folks who not only have endured uh, the experience of being fired simply for being who they are, but have now, on behalf of our entire community, taken this brave stand to argue these cases and, and hopefully get the resolution we finally need to establish that Title VII does, in fact, apply to the LGBTQ community. Right. Um, And it's so important. Uh, Again, this is uh, the first big high-profile case the court is hearing this term. There are a number that some were announced just this week. Uh, They're going to take up the abortion question. It's kind of frightening when you look at the makeup of this current court with two Donald Trump uh, appointees on it. Uh, Does that frighten you? This is a high-stakes time in our country around so many issues. LGBTQ issues, reproductive justice and abortion rights, immigration, the list goes on and on. Um, And what we certainly believe in is that we have to use every tool available to us to fight for rights that are promised under the Constitution. And that includes bringing cases to the Supreme Court. Um, We are absolutely determined to win the right to protect folks from employment discrimination. Uh, We're the court's ruling, which is expected sometime this spring or early summer, is one vehicle for doing that. But we're also advocating each and every day for the passage of the Equality Act, which has been proposed. It's passed through the House uh, at the federal level, um, and it would be a legislative solution to this issue. So I think anyone who works around issues of civil rights uh, knows that we have to be working on all fronts uh, and knows also how critical things like the 2020 election cycle will be to ensure that um, we have every tool available to us, uh, whether it's uh, at the judicial level, the legislative level, or the executive level. We have to be uh, savvy and uh, very persistent about using every avenue to create the kind of uh, change that's needed for any community that's under attack. Without a doubt. Now is a good time for basically all hands on deck um, <laughs> to, to, to yeah, join, absolutely. right? That's, we wake up each day and say that. Oh, cool. Um, and, you know, today it's playing out in a very high-stakes, very high-profile way, of course, but it also plays out in very quiet ways in people's, uh, the work people are doing every day across the South. Well, absolutely. That's why these three plaintiffs, um, they're so courageous to, to come forward and let their private lives be put on display in this manner. Hopefully, it'll, it'll work out. I'm thinking back to the, the day the Supreme Court decision was announced on um, marriage equality and the end of, the, of DOMA. And, um, oh, man, what, what was her name? I can picture her. Uh, Edie Windsor. Edie, Edie yes, Windsor. Edie Windsor. I mean, she became just a, um, an icon, not only for the LGBTQ community, but for 
uh, progressive Americans who want to see us move in a, in a forward direction, <laughs> equal rights for all. What what an amazing woman she turned out to be. And um, I have a feeling we're going to get to know these three plaintiffs after today as well. Yeah, and, and that's really what's powerful about cases like these and, and other cases we've seen throughout American history is it's the lives of everyday Americans who have experienced injustice and have said, I'm ready to stand up and yeah. I'm going to share my story, often at great risk and sacrifice to themselves and their private lives, um, but to do that in the greater good. So we certainly are sending so much support to the plaintiffs and their lawyers working with them. Um, and, uh, you know, what we also know is that for, for each of the plaintiffs in these cases, their story represents so many other stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we regularly hear stories of people who they've been fired from a job, they maybe didn't get a promotion they seemed very qualified for, they didn't even get through the interview process, and and they heard explicitly hostile things either about uh, their gender identity or their sexual orientation, and there often isn't recourse for folks, and that's what we're trying to do is just establish the basic right that should be a right for everyone, which is that you can show up to work, be treated with respect and dignity, and do the job that you're being paid to do and not have to hide who you are uh, while you go about your day. There's a recent report showing that uh, 46%, almost half of LGBT people report being closeted at work. Mm. And we're closeted when we fear that we can't share who we actually are because we fear there will be negative repercussions. And um, we know people cannot do their best work when they're having to constantly regulate what they share about their lives um, and, and how they go about their work. Of course, I can't even, couldn't even imagine having to hide the essence of who I am. And, and sadly, a big portion of the population has to. Um, our guest is Jasmine Beach Ferrara, Executive Director of the Campaign for Southern Equality. Their website is southernequality.org. And I was just looking at it. Um, and, you, you know, you mentioned you, you fight for um, working to build a South where LGBTQ people are equal in every part of life. But if you, under your Our Work tab, you've got a bunch of things, including community health program. Um, uh, and and volunteer opportunities. So so, what other things do you offer? Uh, maybe somebody who's living somewhere in the South, feeling alone. Um, is there a way yeah. to work with you guys? Absolutely. One of the main things we do is try to make sure folks know they're not alone. And luckily, we live in a digital age where there's lots of ways to connect. We publish a transgender in the South resource guide, for instance. Um, that provides a comprehensive listing of trans family providers across the South. Oh, nice. We had more than 18,000 folks visit that this year, so we know that's a resource that's really moving through our community across the South. Um, we always invite people to become part of the movement we're building. There's lots of ways to engage um, through digital actions, through uh, connecting events in your local community. And we do do more and more work around uh, community health issues, recognizing that the right to get the health care you need in your hometown is another one of those fundamental areas of what it means to be not only equal under the law, but equal in how we conduct our lives. Um, so we're getting ready to release the findings of a Southern LGBTQ health survey that will provide a really large and comprehensive look at the experiences that uh, queer Southerners are having with health and some opportunities we have to improve access to health care and the quality of health care that Southern LGBTQ folks are getting, especially around issues of HIV and AIDS and around transgender healthcare needs. So we do a lot of different work across a lot of different spheres of life, but at the end of the day, what it's all connected by is the experience someone has of being LGBTQ in the South. And you wake up in the morning, you go to school or you go to work, uh, you have healthcare needs, you celebrate life's milestones with your family, uh, and hopefully you have the opportunity to be who you truly are in the town that you call home. And that's why we work across healthcare, across employment law, across direct services, and across political advocacy, because it all ties together in the fabric of people's daily lives. Wonderful. Again, the website is southernequality.org. Again, today is the day the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments about uh, the rights of people to be who they are in the workplace without being discriminated against. There's no cameras in the Supreme Court. We generally get a transcript, though, the next day, uh, sometimes even at the end of the day, so we can... um, check on that. But unfortunately, we're probably not going to get a ruling on this until June, because this is one of those high-profile cases that they usually wait until the very end of the term to announce a decision on, right? That's exactly right, yeah. So part of our job, uh, and we're working as part of uh, coalitions across the country, is to make sure that this is on people's radar screens 
that people are educated about the cases and what's at stake. Uh, and as we build towards the, the expected ruling in June, there will, of course, be a major organizing effort to prepare for the different scenarios we could see and to figure out what next steps look like. Perfect. Uh, Reverend Jasmine Beach-Ferrara, thank you so much for, for uh, spending some time with us today and, and giving us a background and telling us about Campaign for Southern Equality, because I know you guys do great work. Really appreciate your input and the work you guys do. Well, thanks for your support on these issues and the opportunity to talk today. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Thank you again. Bye. As the song goes, the waiting is the hardest part. Because now we wait until June. <laughs> oh, but the Supreme Court will hear lots of other cases between now and then. By the way, let me share with you. Uh, you know, there's no recording uh, or there's no video coming out of the court, so we won't see it. We will get a transcript. If you want to read it, it'll probably be available tomorrow. But let me share this with you uh, from Twitter. And the journalist Mark Joseph Stern, who not only writes for Slate, but he's got a book out called American Justice 2019, The Roberts Court Arrives. So he is a Supreme Court watcher and reporter. And he posted a Twitter thread. I'll share some of it with you. Again, this is Mark Joseph Stern, who's on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. And he wrote, just got out of oral arguments in the Title VII cases. I still think the five conservatives will rule that federal law does not bar LGBTQ employment discrimination. But it was not a slam dunk for either side. Kavanaugh said virtually nothing. He goes on to say, Gorsuch claimed that interpreting Title VII to protect LGBTQ employees will cause, quote, massive social upheaval. He gestured toward open-mindedness on the textual arguments, but I think he will vote against LGBTQ rights. Then he posted, Kavanaugh asked one question, whether the anti-LGBTQ side was, quote, drawing a distinction between the literal and ordinary meaning of discrimination because of sex. I'm not sure he has made up his mind. I suspect that when he does, he will side against LGBTQ rights. And he goes on. Mark Joseph Stern tweeted a little bit about uh, Solicitor General Noel Francisco, who, he says, repeatedly argued that Congress wasn't thinking about LGBTQ people when it passed Title VII in 1964. Ruth Bader Ginsburg responded that Congress wasn't thinking about sexual harassment either, but the court still recognizes it as sex discrimination. It was a powerful moment, he says. This is another interesting tweet. On terminology, Mark Joseph Stern writes, the justices did okay. Alito and Robert seem to avoid pronouns, lots of singular they, a few uses of transgendered, alas. Only Francisco used the term cisgender. The anti-trans lawyer used bigoted language, refusing to call trans people by the right pronoun. And then he says, there was a low-key, beautiful moment when Kagan almost referred to a trans person's biological sex, then stopped herself and thought for a moment and said, sex assigned at birth instead. We're learning. And he wrapped up this thread by saying, anyway, I think the court will reject the argument for LGBTQ equality by a 5-4 vote, with the five conservatives claiming judicial modesty and saying Congress has to deal with this. But I wouldn't say there's no cause for hope. It was not a wipeout for LGBTQ rights by any means. Again, that's the uh, impression of Mark Joseph Stern, who was obviously in the courtroom today. You can find his comments on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. And with that, we come to the end of yet another episode of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. Happy to be filling in for Brad and Desi. Well, I'm ready for them to come back already, and I suspect you are too. Uh, it should just be a few more days. They they did arrive home to to major messes. Then I'm sure they'll fill you in on when they get back. Um, they've also, remember, been dealing with a family tragedy as an unprecedented amount of news broke during the, the few weeks they were gone. So there's some catching up to do as well. I know they're working on all of it and are anxious to get back to the show. So uh, just a few more days. Bear with me. And as always, should you want to reach me, I'm at NicoleSandler.com. That's my website. It's where you can download my show. Uh, and you can email me anytime, Nicole at NicoleSandler.com. I don't answer every piece of email, but I do read it all. I promise you. And I, I answer most of it. 
And of course, I'm always on Twitter at Nicole Sandler, too. All right. Well, we'll do it again tomorrow. Until then, I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen, echoing the sentiment. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.